Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Okay, thank you. Well, great to be with you. That's been wonderful uh, to be with you. We so much missed our time in Florida, obviously, for several reasons. We think of the temperature here. We got snow again today. I had to use a thing called a snowblower. I know most of you don't even know what that thing is. But uh, as it was my grandkids and they wanted to have fun using the floor. But we had to shovel and snow blow. And it's going to be cold again tonight. Uh, probably somewhere close to minus 30 Fahrenheit. And so uh, we miss Florida for a number of reasons. But we miss certainly seeing you dear folk and our friends in Ocala. Um, We've had eight years of coming uh, regularly. And so it's a big part of our life and we certainly enjoy our times with you. Talk to uh, Mike and Jody and they've reserved their place for us for next year. So Lord willing, we will be there. Uh, Lanny can polish up his golf clubs and get ready uh, for next year. So we're in James uh, chapter four. We're going to look at tonight. We obviously won't get through all of James. We've touched on some of chapter five. But in James 4, uh, James really talks about the value of a good testimony. Remember, these people have been scattered. Uh, they've got their issues, obviously, the pressures of the world, the interaction with each other, and that type of thing. And James is reminding them of the value of a good testimony. Now, you sang that hymn by uh, Robert Murray McShane, When This Passing World Is Done. Uh, the last verse says, of course, the last verse we sing, teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. There's actually 13 verses when McShane uh, wrote that. Uh, fortunately, we only sing four. If you uh, were in Kerala, where Brother Curiel comes from, or Curian comes from, you'd sing all 13. Uh, verses. But Robert Mary McShane uh, died at 30 years old. He was a pastor in Dundee in Scotland early in his 20s. And in the five years of his pastorate there, he had a testimony that affected Scotland for a whole generation, dying at 30 years old. There was a missionary to India, Henry Martin, he died at 31 years old. In his eight years on the mission field, he translated the New Testament into three different languages. The, his nickname, his moniker that was given to him was Saintly Henry Martin. A testimony that touched many, many people. They had a quote I couldn't find but, uh, from Jim Elliott. who talked about the value of a good testimony. And in it, he said something to the effect that, uh, you know, somebody like Wagner could be uh, immoral and still write good music, and Byron could be lecherous and still write good poetry. But with a Christian, it cannot be so. Our testimony is the currency we have uh, to function. Just a little aside, uh, a bit of trivia about Jim Elliott. His parents were Canadian from Ontario, moved to Washington State. His grandparents, their name, his maternal grandparents, their names are the McAllisters, and they're they donated their land, which is now the Guelph Bible Conference grounds here in Ontario. And so that came from Jim Elliott's grandparents into the Lord's uh, work. And it's been functioning in that way for the last 90 uh, years. 
So a good testimony is of great importance. And you have here in chapter four, things we face in the Christian life that we have to uh, work against or overcome in order to maintain a good testimony. Sadly, so many believers have not finished well. And there are many notable men, especially, who have not finished well. Some, uh, some who have been in Florida in full-time work um, have not finished well. Uh, some in uh, ministries that are very, very well known have not finished well. And so it's so important that in the uh, course of life that we strive to finish well, mark a maturity, a good testimony, in this, in this world. So let's read just the first 10 verses. We may touch on the balance of the chapter a bit, but mostly we'll take our thoughts from these first 10 verses of chapter four. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that warn your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in you, in us, yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. <clears throat> so in these verses, there are those things that we face that we might say uh, are against a good testimony, things we have to fight against or take a stand against, and not necessarily in the order they're found, but just in an order that's familiar to us. One of the things he mentions is the world and the appeal of the world, what the, what the world has to offer. And when we think about this world, the hymn writer said, this world is no friend to grace, to help us on to God. Uh, this world, uh, when we speak of the world in a sense, it's not the world of humanity, the world of nature, but the world of philosophy and idea. Uh, last week we looked at uh, the, the end of chapter three. It's the wisdom of this world, what the world says matters. And the world, of course, is no friend to uh, the Christian or the Christian life. Uh, you think of somebody like Demas. Why did he forsake uh, the ministry? Because he loved this present world. Doesn't mean Demas wasn't saved. Uh, just he didn't want to be involved in the work anymore. He gave up because he found this present world far more appealing. Just look over at 1 John uh, chapter, chapter 2. <clears throat> John says about this world, verse 15, 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, 
but is of the world, and the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And so the world is opposed in terms of its philosophy, its view of life is opposed to what God stands for. Ephesians chapter 2, before we are saved, we walked according to the course uh, of this world. That's what dominated and dictated how we lived, the philosophy of uh, this world. And so we fight against that. And of course, we live in a prosperous part of the world, and it has so much to, to offer. It was interesting in our, in our time in, in Zambia, uh, when we lived there, of course, a long time ago, but one year we lived in the bush up in the northwest province, and people were quite content uh, with what they had. The second year we lived on the copper belt in a city, and the, most of the believers had television, and they watched North American sports and TV shows, they watched NBA basketball and so on, and Many of them were not content then with what they had, their lifestyle. Many of them were seeking to immigrate to, uh, to other uh, countries because they saw something different, something uh, beyond. And of course, uh, they only wanted what we enjoy and what we have. But there's a, a, an appeal and allure to the world. Now, many of us get to a certain age where some of that appeal or allure uh, lessens, but we've all got to work through that, the, the thought of what the world has to offer. Just look back at Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment. You think of Moses and the choices he made. Verse 24, Hebrews eleven twenty-four. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And so he said no to certain things. He said no to the pleasures of sin. He said no to the treasures that Egypt had to offer. All that the world offered, he said, no, I'd rather suffer reproach with the people of, of God. I'd, love, I'd rather live in light of the reward that's going to come someday. He made those conscious choices. Choices far greater than we'd ever have to make. The riches of Egypt are far beyond uh, anything we'd have to think of. The pleasures of Egypt, far beyond anything we would have to think of. And so the world is against uh, the Christian. And many believers over the years, and I've known many, who have lost their testimony in the pursuit of what this world has to offer. Men who were keen when I was uh, young, men with more gift and ability than me, many of them disappeared into this, this world, and you don't find them involved in the Lord's things anymore. <clears throat> the second thing we find in here, well, I should say, what he says here is, is when we are friends with the world, we are pitting ourselves against God, at enmity with God. Well, that's what we were like before we got saved. Romans 5 tells us. So we don't want to be in that position now, working against God. There's this world and that world, and we certainly want to live for that world. Then there's the flesh. And so he talks about the war within, talks about the desires of the flesh, what we want to have. And there's something in us that 
finds uh, satisfaction in what the world has to offer, the appeal of sin and of satisfaction in the world. Uh, you think of what Jeremiah said about his people or God said about them. They've committed two evils. He said, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. And so all of us have thirst for things. Thirst perhaps for significance, security, satisfaction, but a thirst that can only really be fulfilled in Christ. That's what he his message to the Samaritan woman was that satisfaction, security could only be found in him. She would never thirst again. And so the battle with the flesh never ends. Now I talked about the fact that as we get older, there's things we can't do physically, but we can still think them and we still battle with those thoughts and those ideas in our mind. The flesh is always with us. I think I mentioned a man I once knew He's dead now, but he claimed to be sinlessly perfect and reached that place of sinless perfection. But I think I mentioned his wife didn't think so. And uh, none of us will get there. It's an ongoing battle with the flesh. It's always with us. And then the third enemy, he mentions the devil. Resist the devil, he says in verse, verse seven. Peter tells us Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I would suggest that for many believers, Satan hardly has to worry. Uh, there's so little going on in their life, and their testimony is poor. Why would he bother? But when there's a vibrant testimony, and when there's progress being made, Satan is going to be interested in that situation. And when he's seeking to devour, he has no power over us. But what he seeks to do is destroy the testimony. That's his ultimate desire in terms of Christians. For non-Christians, his work is to stop them from coming to Christ. Matthew 13, the birds snatch the seeds. The Lord Jesus says that's the work of Satan. Second Corinthians 4, Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. Well, they don't see uh, the glory of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He blinds their minds. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, he's standing there to resist uh, the work of God. And so Satan is opposed uh, to anything that's godly or to do with a good testimony and loves nothing better than to destroy a testimony. We're told to stand against the wiles of the devil. Uh, we're given a weapon, the word of God. Now, that's not the Bible in your lap. It's the word in you. But we're to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. It's interesting. We're to flee youthful temptations, but we're to resist the devil. There's things we're to run away from, but there's other things that we are to resist, and we're to resist the devil. Uh, just by way of illustration, there are two men in the Old Testament who were killed by lions. Uh, there are other men who overcame lions. You think of David killed a lion. Uh, Daniel was in a lion's den. They didn't hurt him. Samson, through the Spirit of God, tore a lion in, in part. But two men, in fact, just look back at 1 Kings chapter 13. These are intriguing stories. 
1 Kings 13. <clears throat> this is a story about a prophet who came and prophesied about Josiah going to be the king 150 years before Josiah was born. But God told him not to stay and eat in the, in, uh, the place where he was. But in verse, uh, verse uh, 26, 1 Kings 13 and verse uh, 26. Now, when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. So why did the lion kill him? He was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Now, the next story is a little more obscure. It's in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 36. 1 Kings 20 and verse 36. And the setting here is, well, we'll read from verse 35 for the setting. Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor, by the word of the Lord, strike me, please. The man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. Now, the interpretation doesn't belong to us. If somebody says to you, punch me in the face uh, and you don't do it, it doesn't mean you will get eaten by a lion. But the point is here, this man implicitly disobeyed the word of God. So on both these occasions, there was disobedience. The word of God was plain. They disobeyed and both ended up being killed by a lion. Very good illustration of the fact that Satan goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Whom does he devour? Those who are disobedient to the word of God. And so the world, the flesh, the devil, uh, he mentions in verse 11, we looked at this previously, other people. Um, that can really harm our testimony as well. I've met Christians over the years who are bitter, and that bitterness just comes out of them. And so uh, they can relate the incidents that happened 30 years ago as if it happened yesterday. They, they haven't let go of those things. They haven't forgiven. And the root of bitterness, uh, the writer of the Hebrews talks about the root of bitterness and how destructive uh, that is. And so that's a danger to somebody's testimony as well. So James is trying to stress to these people the importance of a good testimony. And here are those things that we are in conflict with the world, the flesh, the devil, and of course, interaction with other, other people. So how do we go about conquering in this conflict? What do we do that gives us a, a victory? Well, several times he talks about the need for humility. If you look at verse 6, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Then in verse 10, humble yourself. And then in verse 16, he talks about arrogance, the lack of humility. And so when we are uh, proud, we give Satan an opportunity. 
that is not there when we humble ourselves in the sight of God. Pride is a terrible disease. It's been said it's the only disease that afflicts us, that makes everybody else sick. Uh, when we're full of pride, it makes everybody else uh, sick. And so it's a terrible thing when you think of the fact that God resists. He stands against the proud. He doesn't get the economy of God. You see that all through the, the scriptures, the importance of humility, the mind of Christ, how we view others and what we think of, of others. Uh, pride puts us in a position where we won't yield to God, we won't submit to God, but humility says, I need you. I want to be used by you. I can't do it myself. And we willingly submit ourselves. We are humble uh, to uh, to God. Um, humility is one of those things when you think you have it, you probably don't. Or when you're proud of your humility, you've lost it. And so others will know when you're humble, perhaps more than you yourself uh, will know. And so humility is such a vital thing. It's mentioned in Ephesians 4 in the context of endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace. The verse before talks about the need for uh, humility and how important that is in our interactions and dealings with others. And so how do we, how do we conquer uh, these things? Uh, humility of life. Another thing he says, draw near to God. In verses uh, 7 to, to 10, there are, there are 10 imperatives. Uh, an imperative in the Greek language is like a command. It's this is what you are to do. And there's 10 of them in these verses. Uh, the imperatives of the New Testament are, are like uh, commands for us. So, for instance, uh, take a well-known one, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's an imperative. It's not maybe you should, would you like to? It's you must do this. Rejoice in the Lord. Uh, in everything, give thanks for this is God's will and you can uh, God's word will concern you in Christ Jesus. It's an imperative. It's not uh, just an idea, a wish that's given in the sense of imperative. So there's imperatives here. And one of them is in verse 8, to draw near to God, to be in fellowship with him. And so he talks about the consequences of sin. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Uh, purify your hearts. Lament and mourn and weep. And the importance of keeping the way clear between us and the Savior. The relationship we come into is unbreakable. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit, preserved in Christ Jesus, hidden in the Father's hand. Nothing can change the relationship. But fellowship is totally dependent on us. And fellowship comes and goes in the Christian life as we have unconfessed sin in our life. So if we walk in the light, John tells us, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. To walk in the light is to have our life exposed to his holiness, to his word. And so that we deal with sin and we maintain fellowship. That's what the Lord wants. If you look down at chapter 5 of James, the last couple of verses, he talks about a sinner. 
but he's talking about a sinner among Christians, brethren, if anyone among you. And he talks about intervening in their life uh, so that you save the soul from death or from destruction. The thought here is you're intervening so that they will recognize they need to get back in fellowship with the Lord. He's not talking about a sinner on his way to hell. He's talking about a believer out of fellowship with the Lord. And we as Christians concerned and intervening uh, so that uh, that person recognizes the importance of being in fellowship with the Lord. John 15, that's the thought there. Uh, we abide in him. The word abide just has that idea of fellowship. Stay where you've been placed in fellowship uh, with him. Uh, in John 15, there's a progression. If we know him, we love him. If we love him, we obey him. We obey him. We will abide in him. And so, draw near to God. Another thing he mentions is the will of God, what the Lord wills. He mentions that, for instance, down in verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Do we uh, seek God's will? Are we willing to submit ourselves uh, to the Lord? Verse 7, to submit. It's the idea of surrender. Surrender leads to obedience, but it's a, an attitude. It's a, an act of our will where we surrender ourselves, we submit ourselves to him. The New Testament, the Greek word for disobedience, means to put yourself alongside of. Obedience means to put yourself under. So to submit, to surrender our will to his will. Uh, we often talk about you know, setting priorities, which is important, but scripture has more to say really about this idea of surrendering, submitting, ourselves to him we see that in the life of the lord jesus i came to do your will O god and then we're to do good he talks about uh, our actions in here as well about how we interact not just to be hearers of the word but doers also so he says these are the the elements of a, a good testimony now, as it says on your sheet, a lot of this starts with attitude. It's what's going on. What's our attitude? What's, on, what's going on in our mind? Our view of self, our view of others, uh, our pursuits in life, what really matters to us. And uh, usually our actions and our words really betray what our attitude is. Um, met a guy on Sunday who... Uh, in driving by, stopped to chat, and he, he, a believer, but wasn't coming to Lord's Supper, he said, oh, I have a bad attitude. Well, fix your attitude. You don't, you don't need to use that as an excuse to stop remembering the Lord. And so we can have an attitude that's out of touch, that focuses on ourselves. You know, we talked about the flesh. Uh, Ephesians 5 said, no one in this world ever yet hated their own flesh, but loves it or nourishes it and cherishes it. The world talks about self-love. Um, there's no need for self-love. Everybody has it. There's a need to have a proper attitude towards others and to the work of God. He talks about an attitude that is submissive in the end of the chapter when we make plans and we say it's if the Lord wills, we acknowledge he is in control. But then our ambition as well. What, what do we really want in life? If you look at 
for instance, verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. That's far more important than what the world has to offer. The fact that he will take care of you. The fact that he will give you the grace you need in the time of need. And so those things really matter. We have that ambition to have his grace to help us in a time of need, to have him lift us up, to seek his will, to live for those things that are above. I have a little poem. It was written by James Nicholson's father, Boyd Nicholson. It says, what do I really desire in this life? Is it something for me and little for thee? What do I grandly aspire in the strife? Is it thee, blessed God? Is it thee? What drives me to serve day by day? Is it something for me or glory for thee? What motive enlightens each nerve in the fray? Is it thee, my God? Is it thee? So the value of a good testimony. I pray that I finish well. I trust that each of us has that desire. The enemy is there. The things that are in conflict with us. But God has given us the resources to live a life that's different. That's above the fray. And so, and I trust that as we've looked at these things, you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I've read James many times, studied it, but going through it again, it's just encouraged me. And so I trust in a similar way has brought encouragement to you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it's so practical. What was written to these believers 2,000 years ago still applies to us in such a real way. The struggles they faced, though the circumstances, the culture was different, yet the struggles are the same. The enemies are still the same. The world, the flesh, the devil, interaction with other people. But the resources are still the same. What we have and find in Christ and what you give us uh, to live the life you want us to live. Help us, Father, to value a good testimony and strive to finish well to your glory. We pray as we commit ourselves to you in the Savior's name. Amen.